0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Career Navigators podcast. This is where we learn together how others experienced their transition from academia into the world, and what they're up to now. So if you, like me, want to set your compass for a journey outside of academia, and you want to identify which non-academic voyage might be for you, welcome to the pod. And remember, even if our guest doesn't have the exact background, location, or job you're interested in, try to keep an open mind, there's always something to learn. I'm your host, Nikki van Tilingen-Bakker. Today, I'm joined by Victor Bustus, who did his PhD at the Max Planck Institute for the Biology of Aging before he got contacted for one of these jobs I never even knew was out there for a life science graduate. He started working at Apollo Ventures in Hamburg, Germany, two years ago, and will tell us about the world of startups and venture capital through the lens of an entrepreneur in residence. Enjoy. Well, thank you very much for coming. Basically, where did you come from and how did you get to where you are now? If you could give a short introduction.
1: Absolutely, Nikki. And uh, Lindsay, thank you very much for uh, inviting me here. It's a great pleasure to be here. And as I told you before in the warm-up, I'm happy to see there are people joining to this because if this existed while I was a PhD student, I would have definitely enjoyed this. Try to get uh, more perspective on different career options. So congratulations for you uh, taking this initiative. So as a brief introduction, I come originally from Colombia, and I came to Germany almost uh, 10 years ago. I arrived in Göttingen at the uh, Max Planck Institute for, biology, uh, for Biophysical Chemistry, in the Molecular Biology Program. However, already when I arrived there, I knew that I wanted to do um, research in aging biology. However, the options for that kind of research in Göttingen were very limited. And for that reason, I decided to reach out to a relatively new Max Planck Institute in Cologne. That is, like you said, the Planck Institute for Biology of Aging. There, I was lucky enough to be accepted for, um, to do my master's thesis. And already two months into the master's thesis, we realized that I was a good fit. They were happy to be with my work there, and I was very happy to be there. So after finishing my master's thesis with them, I joined the PhD program in Cologne. That was in 2012 when I started my PhD. It wasn't until uh, 2016 when I finished the PhD and I stayed in the lab as postdoc to, to kind of wrap up and advance a little bit more of the projects that I had there. And in 2018, like you said, I joined uh, Apollo Ventures, that is a venture capital firm uh, with the role of entrepreneur in residence.
0: That's great. Thank you very much for this, this introduction. Going back to your days in academia, do you kind of remember when you this moment that hit you when you really knew what you wanted to do and how did you start looking for opportunities from there?
1: Okay, um, that is a great question. I don't think there was a very definitive moment that tell me, oh, you have to do this. Um, I actually remember answering very honestly at the beginning of my PhD when people were asking me what do you want to do. I was very seriously replying, I want to become a professor and I want to have my own research lab. So that is the one goal that I have. However, as it happens, uh, throughout the perhaps already second and third year of the PhD, I realized that, of course, science is fascinating. But there are many alternatives uh, that could be very viable. And given the fact that I was always interested in technology, I started having a look at um, people that have very ambitious goals that, for example, are starting companies in technology that are literally shaping the world that we live into. And so it's only natural for me to um, take a small jump and start uh, looking into the biotech version of those startups and become more and more interested in the idea of, of course, still being related to uh, the science, in particular the science of aging biology, but also Trying to do something that is going to have an impact and is going to uh, potentially uh, improve the life of people in one way or another. And
0: did you did you feel like you had a lot of support at your institute? Because as we heard last week from Isabel, she struggled a little bit with her um, with being open about her wanting to leave academia. How did that feel
1: for you? I mean. I think it's, it's normal within Max Planck Institutes to have a much more um, academic-centric view of what kind of careers one should aspire for. And it's, it's natural, given the fact that these institutes are, have mailed or have built around uh, um, basic research. Um, so that said, I did get a little bit of support uh, um, from my PI PA in particular. I remember clearly once I wanted to go to a conference that was not science-related, but more biotechnology kind of introduction, which is actually called the GAP Summit. Highly recommended for anybody that is interested in taking some first steps into biotechnology. Uh, And after mentioning this uh, conference to her, she was very supportive. She was happy to pay for both the flight and the visa that I needed for that conference.
0: Okay, that's good. And did you engage in any extracurricular activities and how do you think that shaped your
1: decision? Yes, I did engage in different extracurriculars. I volunteered to organize, for example, uh, internal conferences. I volunteered to uh, be a PhD representative to try to get people thinking more about their careers but also about thinking about uh, their well-being, right? It's also important to have social events that are going to allow us to unwind a little bit of all the, you know, Thinking and stress that can come with you know starting uh, or doing a PhD. Um, beyond that, in terms of the um, biotechnology area, I think I did quite a little, uh, quite a bit of reading by myself uh, because this is something that was simply very, very interesting to me. Um, so again, I, I don't think I have to uh, encourage people to do some reading by themselves here. Everybody does that all the time for their PhD. This is a very natural thing for um, for us to do. What, what kind of material were you reading? It was very diverse, I have to admit. Uh, it went from uh, you know, YouTube videos of introduction to what uh, business concept, concepts could be. It also went to, for example, uh, I, I watched a couple of TV shows that were somehow related to funding of um, biotech, uh, tech startups. And of course, they would be throwing words that I didn't understand. So it could be going back into the web, trying to understand the definitions of those and the business concepts behind those definitions.
0: If there's one thing out of all those things that you can remember that you would recommend to people, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, (laughs) So there is a book by Peter Thiel that is called From Zero to One. Peter Thiel, for those of you that don't know, he was one of the founders of PayPal, and he is regarded as a very savvy um, and very smart innovator. And in this book, which I highly encourage you guys to read, he makes one, one fundamental argument, and that is that the step of going from nothing, from no, no product, no solution, to a small solution is much more valuable, much more interesting than bringing that already existing product or already existing solution into a, a better version of itself. And this is very connected to arguments that he makes that, for example, competition is for losers. You don't want to be necessarily competing, competing with somebody that already has a solution for a problem that you're trying to solve again. You want to create a novel solution for a problem that has none. And so I, this really kind of shaped a little bit my thinking in that regard.
0: Hmm, that's that's very good to hear. And then let's move a little bit forward in time. So you did all your reading and then you started applying for jobs. How many jobs do you think you applied for at that point in time?
1: Well, this is uh, funny in a way because uh, I would say I applied only to two jobs. Uh, and the only reason that I actually applied to uh, Apollo is because they reached out to the lab where I was doing a PhD To inquire whether anybody in the lab was interested in creating companies, had a background in uh, the biology of aging in the research side, and was willing to start working with a relatively new venture capital to try to create a biotech company in the area of aging biology. And so it was pretty much a perfect fit that I realized it was a very, very lucky event. Uh, that I was lucky enough to take advantage of because you know I replied and got a couple of interviews and then after that I was uh, accepted.
0: Okay. So you said that you did your PhD and then you stayed for a postdoc. Was that to finish up a paper or did you just uh, stay in the lab while you were looking for jobs? How did that work?
1: So it was a bit of, a bit of both. The idea was to indeed wrap up the main paper of my um, uh, PhD, And I did advance with the science. However, and as many of you may relate, we were not able to find a particular mechanism. We were eager to try to find that mechanism in order to fulfill or to uh, finish the publication. So as of today, that publication is still not out. There is another PhD student in the lab trying to uh, come up with a better explanation for the findings that I had.
0: Okay. Well, that's good. Let's hope that one day it will be published since...
1: Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that day.
0: (laughs) Exactly. It's always nice to see your hard work come to fruition, I guess. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So you started your your new job. What would you say, um, when you started, were some of the biggest hurdles you had to overcome?
1: So the biggest one was the change of mentality. Because as... Scientists, we are trained to be highly critical, highly analytical. And every piece of data that is going to be presented to us, we're always going to be able to come up with questions around that data. And so when um, companies, biotech companies, come to you and tell you, I have this data, this is our hypothesis, this is where we want to go, at the beginning I was very critical and very skeptical that any of those claims could be true because I haven't seen all the data, and I was very skeptical of those ambitious ambitious goals because they had relatively few data to back that uh, those ideas. Uh, however, I have uh, understood over time that as long as the initial science is solid, and you are not making, uh, let's say, claims that are not cannot be backed by your uh, data you would be able to get financing to create or to advance your company.
0: Okay. And so when you first started, what was your favorite thing then? I'm not talking about now necessarily, but um, about when you first started, what was the most
1: exciting part for you? So maybe let's take a step back. Within Apollo, I have two roles. Uh, Let's say secondary one is that of an analyst. What does that mean? That I analyze the science and the business ideas behind companies that approach us in order to get financial or management support. That side was very exciting to see many different companies trying to solve problems associated with the development of novel medicines to try to cure diseases or even aging at some point, right? However, the major role for what uh, I was hired and the reason why I'm called Entrepreneur-in-Residence is because I, have, I was given the kind of time and the responsibility and the freedom to explore different scientific projects and options, to uh, partner with different scientists, and then create a company uh, based on their preliminary results to accelerate that transition from their discoveries into novel medicines or, or diagnostics, for example.
0: Okay, so at this point in time, how, how what does an average day for you look like? How is,
1: are these two roles kind of balanced? Um, So they have changed quite a bit since the beginning, right? Because um, at the beginning, I was spending a lot of time reading uh, novel research, reading papers, reaching out to different professors, discussing with them what kind of projects they had going on in the lab, whether they had follow-ups to a recently published paper, whether they were thinking at all uh, in translational terms, whether they wanted to bring this into a a biotech or, or something like this. And so those initial days were a lot of, uh, papers, a lot of conversations with uh, scientists, and a lot of trying to develop relationships and build something together. In the side, of course, there was there will always be these companies approaching Apollo, and if something falls within my particular area of expertise, I will have a look, discuss with those uh, scientists and, and um, management people, and understand what are the expectations from our support and whether there would be a this could be a good investment for Apollo. However, nowadays, even though the secondary role hasn't changed that much, the primary role has changed because uh, luckily we have been able to establish a collaboration with uh, an institution and we are now starting to spin out the company, which means that I do have quite a bit of science with the team that we have assembled, but there's also a lot of management and a lot of coordination that has to be going on into the uh, development of the company.
0: Hmm, that, that's very interesting. So do you think that when you started, but also the development of your of your career within this company, do you think your PhD properly prepared you and your experiences during your PhD?
1: In terms of the science, yes, absolutely. In terms of the business side, no. Uh, as I said, I did a lot of reading by myself and that's kind of what gave me, I, I won't lie, this was a very small edge at the beginning because i was familiar with certain concepts i had an understanding understanding of some basic ideas but of course once i started here and you get you know once you get thrown into the pool and you don't know how to swim you got to learn how to swim right and so uh, that's that was a little bit the the, the experience that i had
0: mm. and so someone uh, in the chat is asking whether you think that passing a cfa module is essential to to start a career in venture venture capital
1: it, it is not I wouldn't think it's essential if you are focused on life science venture capital. However, it will help. You know, this will be always a plus.
0: Of course, and putting it on your CV will probably also exactly. make it more visible. Exactly. You mentioned being thrown into the pool and needing to learn how to swim. How was the support from from the company? Did someone help you to learn how to swim? Did you get at least a couple of these like inflatable <laughs>
1: thingies <laughs> to learn how to swim, or did they just kind of leave you? No, no, no. The, the, there has been quite a bit of support. Uh, of course, the idea here has always been that the people that join the company, are always very independent. And it's a little bit like, it felt to me very similar to when I started in the lab, you know. You have a lot of support as long as you ask for it. If you want to do things on your own and be a little more independent, you're encouraged to do so. But of course, there's always support to rely on in case you want to learn something new, find new resources, maybe get connected with somebody. Uh, There is definitely support there.
0: And do you think, going back to my previous question a little bit, um, do you think that the, a career in academia or a PhD in academia prepares you to be innovative as such, or do you think there, there's a bit to be
1: learned there? So from my experience at the Max Planck where I was, there is a lot to learn. There is a lot of room for improvement and a lot of room to incentivize and encourage people to think about the idea of innovation, because we all know that Max Planck, in general, is a great place for basic research. And a lot of those basic research uh, may yield something that is very translational, very interesting. However, we are not encouraged to think that way. You know, There is the Max Planck innovation that would help you if you want to patent something that you have discovered. Uh, but they they won't necessarily give you the tools, at least as far as I'm aware, um, to uh, develop this into your own company.
0: So, how if if there's someone with the idea to with the an idea for a product or a medicine or any research that could lead to their own startup, how would you suggest they proceed? What is kind of the process for? Getting VC funding in the end.
1: Yeah, this is this is a very complex question because there are so many different ways to start, to start the idea. I, I'm assuming that we're speaking here about life science and venture uh, biotech, right? So yeah. let's assume that you are starting from a result that you actually obtained during your PhD, or that you know a colleague of yours obtained, and you, he wants to partner with you, or he or she wants to partner with you to start a company. Uh, the first thing that you need to do is, of course, make sure that. Your invention is protected. Having IP is very valuable, especially for early startups. And so that, uh, that would be a very, very important step. Once that is done, that you can discuss the idea of uh, incorporating a company, having a license agreement between uh, your company and the Max Plan Society to have access to that IP. And with that in a, uh, let's say, a business plan or an idea, you can go to a venture capital. Uh, however, this is a very simplified simplified version of it. There's a lot of more nuance to it.
0: And so for those who are not necessarily in the biomedical sector or who, let's say, want to uh, start a new innovative cookie business, um, so anything that's non-biotech related, how would you say that's different in terms of the
1: VC funding process? It's actually very, very different because um, there is a... One of the major differences between life science ventures and technology ventures is that with life science, you will only start making money once your product is accepted. And this is easily a window of you know five to 10 years, easily. However, if it's technology what you're trying to develop, if you have a couple of good developers and you have a very clear idea and you have a little bit of money, within six months, you can have a first product to put in the market, get some uh, initial feedback from the customers that you're trying to reach, and these would already generate some cash flow or some money for your company. And with these, you can already go to another VC or to the same VC and say, hey, we need more money, we're doing things well, we want to grow faster. So uh, there's a very big um, time difference there.
0: Right, so the time to market is is way longer.
1: Absolutely. Uh, There is, however, notable a one notable exemption in, in life science, right? If you're developing a, a platform or a company that develops, uh, that provides a service like a screening platform or, a, uh, let's say, an electronic lab, lab notebook, these are in a way more similar to technology companies because you are not putting something uh, in the market as a medicine or as a diagnostic, but it's a tool for other businesses to take uh, advantage of or to use.
0: Do you eventually want to become a VC or would you rather go work for a startup? And then in that case, how do you, how would you plan to kind of obtain managerial skills or are you just going <laughs> to swim in the pool and see how it goes?
1: It, it's a little bit like that. Uh, you, you learn by doing. Let's say that at the moment, I, I am in this uh, transition into management of this new startup that I have created uh, along with Apollo. Uh, and the idea is that I will, at least the idea I have at the moment, is that I would like to be stay, stay involved with both, much more with the startup to try to make sure that uh, we're doing things right, but still in touch with the uh, venture capital side.
0: So where's the aging field going right now? Which I'm let's let's assume that you are at the forefront of the aging field.
1: And that I want to believe we are yes
0: exactly. So where where do you see that going right now?
1: Okay so this is a very um, exciting time for uh, biotechnology uh, in aging. There are again step back let me tell you why this is exciting or why this is the right time because even if I ask the audience right now you know who wants to be old? nobody would say that they want to be old. But this is not necessarily related to the age that they're going to have. It's because we, everybody, even subconsciously, associates old age with disease, right? And so we are slowly transitioning from this thinking that we need to go and treat diseases into a more, well, if we understand how aging works, we can maybe even prevent those diseases from happening in the first place. And so for the last 30 years, there, have been, uh, there has been research in aging biology. And we have discovered interventions, be that drugs or, or uh, um, for example, exercise or dietary interventions that we know that slow down our aging and improve our health in the long term. Right? If, this would have done, if this would have happened, in, for example, in, in the field of cancer biology, if you find a new compound that seems to be effective against one particular cancer, there's going to be a company spinning out immediately. However, since aging hasn't been considered a disease, there was just research. And so this mentality has been slowly changing for already uh, maybe what eight, eight years or something like this. And there are more and more com- uh, companies coming up trying to leverage that knowledge that we have built over this uh, 30 years to create and develop uh, medicines or interventions that are going to, uh, as I said, Treat aging arthritic diseases, or even prevent them to some extent. And your startup specifically. Yeah, I cannot go too much into the specifics at the moment. That's fair. However, I'll be more than happy to share more with you guys uh, in a couple of uh, maybe months, years. Who knows?
0: <laughs> time to markets very long. Exactly. <laughs> but if everyone gets older, it doesn't matter anymore. Then time is only relative. Absolutely. Would you say that right now, how did your working environment change in the sense that I'm assuming that you have to work with many non-scientists and did this cause you to change your way of
1: communicating
0: with people and and how did you feel prepared for that in
1: the first place? Yeah, that is a great point. Um, and this is also something that you guys might have experienced. Um, communication of your science is key. And so, it's super important that if you get the opportunity to get training on how to communicate your science, you should absolutely take advantage of it and listen to what people that have gone through uh, similar things might have to say about it. And to be honest, I have always been a little bit obsessed with the idea of communication, not only in science, but in general. You know, it's amazing that just with words i can convince you of thinking something different than you uh, originally uh, were thinking before so uh, because of that i have i had always given a high relevance for for communication and with that in mind absolutely you depending on who you're talking with um, the 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 way that you're going to communicate your ideas are going to change uh, dramatically you know i have gone from speaking to pi's and postdocs about the science to speaking to investors that are related to life science, so they have uh, a deep understanding of the biology, but also the business, and then also to investors that have not uh, do not have a strong background in biology. And so you need to be able to convey the same message with a different depth uh, for all of them.
0: And then did you ever have any problems? Because I don't know if at this point in time you speak fluent German. Um, is the, the working language generally English? Did
1: you need any German? How did that work out for you? Uh, so as uh, so of today, you know, after 10 years, I do speak uh, German. It's not perfect by far, but uh, I can manage. Uh, however, the work environment has always been in English. Uh, we do have quite a bit of Germans, as you could imagine. Uh, but uh, everybody is more than happy to uh, stick to English whenever... Uh, Myself or anybody else that doesn't speak German is in the room.
0: Because do you interact a lot um, with people from all over Europe? Is it kind of um, international in the sense that you interact with investors and also other startups from around Europe or even globally? It is is
1: globally, indeed. We interact with anybody that has an interest in aging biology and we don't limit ourselves uh, by geography.
0: Okay, and so, but this this is the case for the the investors mainly, or other startups that you interact with also.
1: For the investors, for the startup, so th- we have talked with companies that are uh, located in the U.S., in Asia, in Europe, um, and in theory, it wouldn't be a problem for us to uh, make an investment and support any of these companies, regardless of the location.
0: Could you comment a little bit on the diff on the potential differences between um, VC culture in, in the States and in, in Europe? How does that differ uh, in your opinion?
1: So there's there's quite a bit of difference and it, it relies mostly on the fact that in the US an, an idea, just an idea, is already a fundable uh, enterprise and the amount of money that you can get in the U.S. is just much, much higher for, uh, you know, if you had the same idea in Europe, you would get way less money for that idea. Uh, in Europe, I, I feel that like there is also a need for uh, a bit more evidence before investors are willing to make a commitment. Don't get me wrong, it's still venture capital, so it's still, there's still risk associated. But I think European VCs have a tendency to try to minimize that a bit more than the ones in the U.S.
0: So how do companies like startups generally bridge that gap from starting the company and getting the data to support it in order to get the, the funding from VCs?
1: So there are different, different ways to do this. Um, you could apply for uh, what is called a non-dilutive grant. What does this mean? It's, it's a grant that, for example, the government of your a country could give you to try to support uh, some initial translational work. Uh, however, there is also the idea that you know you could come to me as a company telling me, I need $5 million to develop my idea. And I would tell you, I like your idea. But until I don't see this data, um, I'm not going to be willing to invest. So here is 100000 Bring me the results. And based on that, we can make a decision. Um, Not many VCs are going to be necessarily, or not every VC is going to be necessarily happy to give you 100000 to do a, a test experiment, but some will be.
0: So, but then how do you think, what do you think the reason that the States, first of all, is a little bit, is willing to invest earlier? And second of all, like, where does all that money come from and why is it not there in Europe?
1: That is a good question. So, where the money is coming from? Everywhere. Venture capital firms are just a fancy name to say, you know, this is a group of people that have in common that they would like to uh, diversify and invest their money in something that could perhaps give them a high uh, return on the investment in the long run. Um, and in terms of the comparison between the U.S. and, uh, and Europe, I think the U.S. is much more uh, entrepreneurial friendly. They're much more... Let's say, tax advantages, and in the end, it's also a much richer ecosystem in terms of the money that is flowing uh, within there, right? There's a, there's a culture of innovation in the U.S. that even though it does exist in Europe, it doesn't exist at the same scale.
0: Okay, and so in Europe, where would you say the major biotech hubs are? Um, and, and do the VCs kind of co-local? Localized? Yeah,
1: Localized, yes. Like a micro, a microscopy. Yeah, like, like science, exactly. yes. <laughs> so the major hubs, I would say uh, the UK, uh, London, Oxford, Cambridge, that's a very big hub. The Golden Triangle. Exactly. We have uh, in Switzerland, right? Zurich and Basel and Lusanne, they have very, very, very interesting biotechnology going on. And they they do have a very strong culture of spinning out companies all the time. I think those would be the biggest ones that come to mind however there are many that are trying to uh, incentivize this uh, this switch or this uh, change and so there are you know if you look today you will find what are called uh, biohubs all over europe you know barcelona madrid paris uh, cologne berlin you will definitely find biohubs uh, in every country
0: if i'm a PhD graduate in a very specific field and I know that I want to, let's say, work for a startup, like where do you think is a general Google search or maybe LinkedIn enough or would you use other platforms to kind of look for a job specifically? So uh,
1: they could be enough but I wouldn't limit myself to just, just those options. Uh, I think a very good way to approach this is to go, you know, you can look for li- uh, life science Um, venture capital and you will be landing in the page of one particular venture capital firm and then you can look at the portfolio companies that they have invested in so you will have a long list of companies to have a look at the other way uh, that you could take is to see if anybody has tried to compile a list of biotechs within your country that would be the second one the third one and probably also a very uh, easy to approach is that you can look for uh let's say, biotech hubs in your favorite city and see which companies are uh, part of those biotech hubs.
0: Yeah, that's a very good tip. Um, so now we have a question from the chat also. So someone's asking if, on your opinion, on the difference of creating a startup uh, naturally, coming from the lab um, and versus a startup like um, your situation at Apollo.
1: Yeah, that is a a fantastic question. And um, there are two points there, right? Starting a company from scratch is extremely difficult. There is a lot of risk associated with it. Um, You have to make sure that you have a salary to survive. And um, there are a lot of things that you need to try to figure out with help, with external help or by yourself. And so in many situations, you would find yourself or you could find yourself trying to reinvent the wheel. That is not necessarily the most efficient approach. However, with the right support and the right approach and the right mentality and maybe a little bit of luck, it's definitely doable. My approach has the advantage that I uh, reduce a little bit the risk for myself in the sense that I had a salary while I was exploring different ideas. Right. However, it also has the risk that there was no guarantee that I was going to find a group of scientists that were willing to collaborate with me to start a company. Right. So it's a little bit of a, a balance there. Uh, however, being part of already a venture capital firm that has some experience creating comp- uh, companies gives us, or give, gave me a, a small advantage in that regard um, because I don't have to be reinventing the wheel for every single problem that come that I come across, especially on the business side of it, right? Because my background is not in business. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. And and do you think that? if someone actually wants to work for a VC firm, so not necessarily um, creating their own startup, do you think it's useful to have consulting experience or industry experience at all? Or do you think it's worth it to just apply and see where it goes? What sort of background? I mean, having
1: consultancy or industry experience could help, but I would just apply. You know, I'm sure there are going to be many things that you're going to have to learn either at consultancy Or in the VC, so I would just apply directly.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. I think it's always worth just to apply and see where you end up, see what their feedback is, and then uh, go from there. Absolutely. Going back a little bit to the... to the kind of biotech business and what is now at the forefront? Of course, there's aging, but what other topics would you say are big now in biotech in
1: Europe, but also globally? Uh, Okay, there are, from my perspective, three gigantic subjects that uh, people are looking into and they are very, very exciting. One of them is the microbiome and everything that has to do with the development of diagnostics or therapies based on the information that we're now getting from the microbiome in your gut, in your skin, in your nose. Um, there is, there is a, lot of, uh, a lot of interesting companies out there. And I'm sure there are many more in the making because it is a, basically a new world that we are uncovering thanks to uh, the technology that has been developed around it. So that's uh, number one. The second one, and this would be not a surprise for anybody, is uh, all, that, uh, all the technology that had to do with uh, gene editing and gene therapies. right? We are slowly but steadily getting closer to uh, developing therapies not only for rare diseases but potentially for um, diseases that affect uh, more people around the world that rely on uh, gene therapies, deliveries with viral vectors or, or things associated to this. So I think those two and, and aging are probably the, the three biggest things in uh, in my eyes.
0: That's good to know for everyone out there who's looking for <laughs> their their latest venture.
1: <laughs> this is what you should keep your eyes out for. To, to be fair, there are many other things. Those are just my, you know, I think from my perspective, the the, the biggest and more interesting ones. Of, of course,
0: if you have a good idea and good data, then I guess you can make anything work. Um, so in terms of the, the company and let's split this question into two tracks. So on the one hand is a VC company and on the other hand is the, is the startup. Um, how easy is it to climb the ladder within those two separate places? And is it easy to change companies or even get job offers at some point you stop applying and hopefully you get offers, um, how do you see that happening in those two tracks, basically?
1: Okay, okay. Let's let's take that in reverse. Yes, you are definitely gonna get offers uh, uh, as soon as you start working in that environment. People are always eager to look for people that have a strong background, that are motivated, and that are working hard. So that's absolutely uh, it's gonna be part of your um, career development. Now, in terms of climbing the ladder. When you work in a venture capital, it really depends. Venture capitals are very, very different between them. However, there is the possibility that you would start as an, uh, either an assistant or an analyst within a venture capital, and then you could move to uh, a higher position within the firm, even reaching uh, what is called a partner, where you, know, where you could potentially have um, um, own a piece of the company, uh, of the venture capital. Within the startup. That's a a much more different approach because if you created the startup, then you're already at the top, right? Of course, once your company starts growing, it would be great to hire somebody with more experience to have a role of CEO or or anybody that has management experience that can not only grow the company but also teach you how to do it so you could eventually uh, take that role once again. However, if you are not starting the company, but you're joining a startup, there is absolutely always going to be room for growth. And the earlier you join, the, the faster you're going to grow. As long as, you know, things go well. <laughs>
0: of course, that, that's the hope when you start anything. Um, and then what would you say is, the, is the, um, the usual exit strategy? Because usually these companies get bought, right? And then... What do you do after? Or how do you get there and what do you do after?
1: I, I, this, is a, this is a loaded question because, again, not every company has the same exit strategy in mind. Right? Some companies, they are created with the goal of creating a lot of value in very few years and then hopefully being acquired by a bigger pharma company that is going to develop their assets and then they can go on, move on to create a new company. Right? The, the entrepreneurs that created that first one. However, other companies, other people, are much more, um, you could even say, attached to their idea and they, what they want to develop. And so they would not necessarily accept money from a venture capital that wants a fast exit. Right, They would rather wait for the right investor to get their company into a place where they feel more comfortable. Right? There are two main ways that investors can get their money back. One is, like you said, um, being bought or being acquired. But the second one is to reach an um, an IPO, right? to um, lease part of your company as a public company. And therefore, you will be able to sell uh, the shares that you own in that company.
0: And then in terms of either being in a startup, but also in a VC firm, what would you say the job security is like? Because someone commented that people think that academia gives actual job security, which I'm not quite sure about that, but how? What do you think that's like in in venture capital?
1: Uh, so I'm not I'm not too convinced that academia gives you job security. Um, and to be fair, I think venture capital and startups, like many any other company, they could offer you you know a permanent contract, but then if they go bankrupt, that is going to be worthless. So I think job security is a little bit of a an abstract idea that I try not to think too much about. I have the conviction that, you know, if you do uh, the best you can, and if you work hard, you're always going to be able to find uh, a job if something happens to the one that you currently have. Yeah, and
0: then kind of... Tying into that with the current situation and, and a global pandemic happening, do you think uh, startups and VC are, are harder hit than
1: any? or? So startups? Yeah, again, it's a matter of timing. You know, If you're a startup and you you're just got some money from investors, then you're fine. You just have to manage that money properly. However, if you, fu- you were hoping to get some money during this pandemic period, then it could be challenging. However, life biosciences are in a very privileged position because now more than ever, the whole world realizes the power of biology. And so not surprisingly, there are a number of venture capital firms in the US and in Europe that have um, raised more money to invest in biotech companies. And so in that regard, I think there is still a lot of, uh, there will be a lot of job opportunities in that space, and there's a lot of money to be invested in companies uh, that are pursuing biotech efforts.
0: So, you think that has increased because of the situation?
1: I mean, yes, it will definitely increase. I don't know if it has increased by now already, but it will definitely increase. That's, that's
0: good to hear for anyone who's interested in joining VC. And then, uh, how would you say with the current situation, how has your life changed versus kind of what did your day to day look like before and how, what does it look like now? Do you look, are you in the usual, you know, On the one hand, I don't have to commute. I don't know how long the commute in Hamburg is, but okay. Um, But I'm in so many Zoom meetings and it's really hard. How do you balance job and family,
1: those kinds of things? So, uh, to be honest, the the pandemic didn't change too much uh, my daily routine, uh, with the exception, of course, of the commute, which is not a very long one, luckily. Um, I did spend some, some time at home doing home office, and the pandemic did slow down some of the uh, work that we had. Of course, uh, some talks with either uh, scientists or, or the people in charge of the institutions that are that we're collaborating with. Uh, however, overall, the system didn't change much. It's just a little bit slowed down. Um, in terms of balance with the family, I, I think this is also something that I did during my PhD, and I encourage everybody to do. You should. Make the time to, uh, you know, have your uh, life outside the lab, right? Because nobody's gonna come and tell you, "Hey, take some holidays." Maybe some of your colleagues might, perhaps your PI will, but the first person to say that it should be yourself, right? So I would really encourage everybody to, you know, find what um, gives them some balance. You know, in my case, for example, and we were discussing this before, um, you know, I play football, and you know. When I was doing my PhD, I was playing football twice a week, no matter what. It didn't matter that I was writing my thesis. It didn't matter that we were, review, uh, were writing a review. It didn't matter. I would always go and play football because that allowed me to have some, you know, mental break.
0: And so, what what do you do um, on a day to day basis? Do you talk a lot to the people in the company? Do you talk a lot to the other investors, um, how do you see that happening? And, and also, how? what's your average work week look like? Is it PhD work week where you work weekends and Sundays and nights and whatever? Or is it really like a
1: nine to five? Neither. So there is, uh, there is uh, I definitely try to keep the weekends free and we all try to keep the weekends free. There could be a situation where you might have to work a little bit over the weekend, but it's not that common. Uh, and in terms of 9 to 5, it really depends. You know, There are some days that you could potentially finish at 5. That's fine. Uh, however, as I mentioned, we are sometimes having discussions with people all over the world. And so to coordinate schedules is not always easy. So I could end up having a meeting with somebody in San Francisco and it would be 9 in the evening for me. Uh, but again, this is not something that happens every day. So it's, it's a little bit of a, uh, being flexible.
0: And so what kind of meetings do you have with, with what kind of people usually?
1: Yeah, so this can, as I said before, it can range from PIs or postdocs. If we are discussing science, that could be interesting for their startup, my startup, or just a paper that came out and we would like to connect and see you know, whether they have any further ideas uh, or evaluating the potential to collaborate in the future. And then you also have the opportunity to discuss with investors that could be interested in investing uh, in the venture capital, uh, but also with other people um, uh, that have or that experiencing something similar than you are. So I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I uh, um, attended a, a webinar by a, a couple of uh, CEOs that are heads for gene therapy and gene editing companies. And I thought that the, the, the conversations that they had and the, the insights that they shared were very, very very good. And so I decided to reach out to them on, on LinkedIn to see if we could connect. And, if, you know, maybe in the future, there'll be an opportunity to uh, discuss aging biology or gene therapy or the interface of the two.
0: Okay. And so then let me ask you a couple of wrap-up questions. One of them, which I'm quite curious about, like if you had infinite money to invest, what would the ideal company look like in terms of the, both the business and the scientific side?
1: Yeah, that's a it's a fantastic question, and I'm laughing because this is actually something that I have a tendency to ask to pretty much everybody that I meet. If you had all the money in the world, what would you do with your time? And um, what would the ideal company look like? Yeah, that's a that is not a straightforward question. Uh, ideally, you would like to have, of course, the best people, right? Because having the best people is what makes an idea succeed. You know, you could have a great idea, but if you don't have the a great team and a, a, a great People working on it or executing that idea is not going to get necessarily very far. It could, but it's less likely. And so I think that the idea of having uh, uh, unlimited money for the development of a company should focus in part of making uh, the work uh, a great place to be and people and for people to thrive. And of course, try to invest that money in the best way possible. You know, many times in the lab. I think in the Max Planck Society, we are very much privileged that if we want to do a fancy, expensive experiment, many of our PIs would be able to say, yes, let's do it. And so I think that kind of freedom would uh, also make a company or help a company succeed.
0: Okay, well, that's very good advice. And speaking about advice, can you tell us an instance of the best and some of the worst advice that you've gotten or over your career?
1: The best advice that I could give you, and any of you guys, is interact with people. And this is another way of saying network, right? I think networking gets you very, very far, not only because of the potential things that you may learn from the other person that you're interacting with, but also because you never know what would happen in the future, and if you stay connected, this will help opportunities happen. I'll give you an example. You know, I have interacted with people at this Gap Summit in 2016. You know, and two years after that, when I started working in venture capital, they saw that I started working here. They reached out, and we stayed connected. This person uh, was also working in venture capital in a different country in Hong Kong. And then, after a couple of years, I also introduced her to somebody else, and now she has a job with this uh, mutual friend of ours. So it's you know, it's it's just. Very randomly, very stochastically. These events happen, but if you start to create uh, your network, this is going to happen more often.
0: And then what is some of the worst advice
1: you've ever gotten? The worst advice? Focus only on your science. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think that would be the worst. (laughs) Keep your eyes open, look at other science, see what other people are doing. I think that's the best way to approach it.
0: Very good. And then to avoid any of that, what if you if you look back at everything you've done until now, like is there a message you would send to your former self, and if so, what would it be to your academic self,
1: let's say? I think we as scientists, especially, have a, a tendency to be a little bit uh, not only skeptical and unsure of the science of others, but ourselves. Uh, and I think I would tell myself, you know, everybody's just trying to figure it out, just like you are. So you know, just try, keep pushing, keep trying. Things will work out in that.
0: Then those are words to live by. Things will work out in the end. Well, thank you very much for coming and, and for um, giving us such great advice. Um, and I really enjoyed our talk today and hopefully... We, everyone else did as well.
1: Absolutely, thank you for thank you very much for your time and for inviting me.
0: And that's it for our interview today. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share, and follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Career Navigators to be updated with new and upcoming episodes and for more information. If you have questions or suggestions, or if you have any interesting career stories we can all learn from please reach out on social media or send us an email at careernavigators.pod at gmail.com. I would like to thank Johan Frieden for making our logo, Lindsay Baltma for help with social media and production, Gustavo Carizo for editing, mixing, and sound design. That's it for me. Catch you in two weeks. Later, Navigators!